right on. Welcome to Circuitous Conversations with Bill and Dan, episode 83 for Monday, April 30th, 2012. I am Bill Wadman. And I am Dan Gottesman. That was nice. How's your throat feeling? It's getting there. Getting there. It, it was hurting. It was, uh, yeah. Under, I was a little under the weather over the weekend. <clears throat> I, I think the, the change of the seasons, you know. It's like it's it. these allergies, man. I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, I've realized that uh, the, uh, when the trees are really bad, which I guess is oak around here, mm-hmm. a lot of it, mm-hmm. um, that, that it's not that my throat hurts or that my eyes itch. It's that it just kind of spaces me out. Mm. The problem is, is that the cure for that or the supposed cure for allergies mm. is allergy medicine, mm. which in itself kind of makes me feel spaced out. Yeah. So I think it's just kind of I'm, I, I teeter from one side of normal to the other side of normal. Yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> like there's there's no way to get back to center, you know. Yeah, I, uh, I think I think it also has to do with uh, the surroundings. You know, I, I, all I could tell you is I think I mentioned this before. Um, I think my sinuses or whatever you want to call it, the the bits of my body that get affected by allergies, uh, are more well attuned or they're more accustomed to the east coast you know tri-state area climate than they were when i was in chicago because when i lived in chicago you know living off the lake or whatever uh every like clockwork uh every every season every change of the season i would get uh you know congested and sniffy and it just it was it was really frustrating but since since moving back here in 2006 it uh well, the first couple of years, it just went away, and now it only comes up, you know, very rarely. So, I don't know. I think people are tuned to different uh, different areas, I guess. It is. It's a strange thing. Mm. Uh, I never really had bad allergies when I was growing up, but as I get older, they get worse. Yeah, I've heard that. And, and I've heard that in some cases, some people, like, develop them as, the, you know, when they hit certain ages. I, I got to wonder, though, you know... Some, the, the the climate, the environment has something to do with that too, you know? So it might not be, you know, that you have developed this allergy to this thing all of a sudden. The maybe the climate are changing in this area. Maybe, well, maybe the climate's changing in, in, a, in a way that you are, you know, you've always been allergic, but, but now, you know, but it hasn't been an issue up until, till recently because things are changing around yeah. you. You know, your, your environment's changing. Maybe. Very Sounds subtly. Reasonable. I don't know. It's uh yeah, it's annoying. It's the kind of thing too, where, it's kind of like headaches. Like if you don't get bad headaches or migraines yeah, and you see somebody, you know, you meet somebody who does and they say how terrible it is. Like you really can't understand how debilitating it is. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of thing. So it's kind of like, Oh, whatever you have allergies, let's go. And you're just like, no, I can't even think straight. Like I can't concentrate. I can't, you know, anyway, what are you going to (sighs) do? So, Hey, so I ordered all my new parts. Yeah, I saw your little uh, blog post about that. Yeah, very, so I, very exciting. I, I, the, the new Intel thirty-seven seventy K, the new Gigabyte motherboard, uh, a video card, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Nvidia GT four forty or four thirty for those interested. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, passive, so no no fans. Mm-hmm. I like the no fans on the video cards. Video cards are loud. That that's true. They can be very loud. There's there's a lot of stuff going on these days. Video cards have some pretty serious horsepower. Yeah, like scary serious horsepower. Like in yeah. in many ways more serious than the CPUs. Yeah, you can definitely go crazy with those. I mean, like getting a gigabyte of a video RAM or whatever. Oh or yeah, they, no, the new ones have two gigabytes. Actually, there's one that I think that has three gigabytes of RAM Yikes. on the video card. Yeah, it's Nuts. crazy. Like this this junky seventy dollar one I bought has a gig of RAM. 
So I don't know. It's just out of control. Wow. But um, it's what's crazy about it is that I have now spent how much money was it? Not that much money. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm trying to add it up. Probably around twelve hundred dollars. Sounds about right. And that's uh, a big honking two hundred forty gig uh, super fast SSD. That's thirty two gigs of RAM. That's the motherboard. That's the case. That's a high end power supply. The top of the line consumer CPU, a fancy uh, heat sink thing to go on it, the uh-huh. video card, all of that, mm-hmm. twelve hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and it just kind of gets me thinking. When my mm-hmm. uncle bought his first IBM PC, hmm. I think he spent over four grand on it. Sounds about right. And I mean, think about in, the original Macintosh, dude. The yeah, original, how much was the original? It was Mac? like five grand, dude. Yeah, it's just, and that's in 1984 or 85 yeah, money. Exactly. It was not cheap. Which is like 10 grand now. Easily. Um, it's just, it, it, but what kills me is it's not just that I can get a lot of power for a little money, but it would be very difficult for me to spend more. Like the only way I could spend more is if I went and got multiple Xeon processors, you know? Sure. Like that's the only thing I could do. I, I, or bigger, you can get bigger every, SSDs. Okay, a bigger, but mine is almost a big SSD, you know? It's mm-hmm. just kind of, it's a, uh, it's kind of nuts how, how far this stuff has gone yeah. and how cheap it is. It's true. Um, I remember I found, I was looking through some stuff and I found a, a receipt for eight megabytes of RAM from really? like 20 years ago. Really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, you hold on to receipts for a long time, I guess time, it's not bro. 20 years. It's probably, it was probably when I was at Yukon, so, or Berkeley, maybe 1994, 95. Uh-huh. And I got eight megabytes of RAM and it was $285. What a deal. Right, which actually was not a terrible deal. <laughs> and the crazy thing is that I've now bought, uh, let's see, is that would that be 4,000 times as much? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of nuts. For less money, you know? Yeah, but that's, I mean, it's come I, to the I, point I where now it's like, the way it goes. yeah, now it's like, that's kind of the expectation, honestly. In an almost scary way. Like the, I'm, not, the, I'm not that scared. Well, the, I'm just saying that that people expect this stuff. They they, I guess what I mean is that they they expect it to continue. You know, I, I guess. Um, I, what what gets on my nerves, or what 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 continues to amaze? Well, not amaze me, but just it's. I don't think it's amazing. People just don't seem to understand that. Um, think you know, computers like cars or anything else. Um, you know. They they degrade, <clears throat> they de uh, decrease in value very quickly over time. You know, it just that's just the way it goes. Yeah, you know, just just because you, you, you spent five thousand dollars on this thing today, <laughs> does not mean that you're going to get that much for it when you try to sell it or, you know, if it gets you know. Do people still think it. that? Uh, you'd be surprised, man. People people have a hard time. Like, Unless you buy a Mac Pro, in which case it's still worth the same like five years later. It's kind of nuts, yeah. Mac- Macintoshes in particular, uh, laptops as well, the uh, MacBook Pros yeah. um, and the phones. Jesus. I, I, I mean, I, I told you this. I sold my, my original iPhone 4 for more than I paid for it, which is kind of yeah. nuts. Well, not more than uh, Veri- or AT&T paid for it, though. I don't know. It's uh, but you're right. It's, 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 a, it's a little... Yeah, no, it's true that people people don't understand that this stuff depreciates. Yep, and it depreciates fast. Yep. Um, although holds its value in some ways better than it used to. It's also weird that sometimes 
the price of stuff goes down only to then go up again. Hmm. That I've seen that happen. One of my favorite yeah. t- uh, tricks or tactics or whatever you want to call it. You know, I've, I've played with this obviously with photo equipment, but I've noticed it, um, you know, with other stuff, musical instruments and bikes and other things like that. And there's a pretty interesting concept and that's once something has been deemed used or previously owned, it, it basically reaches a, it reaches a certain value and then it kind of stays there. So that's, that's, if you think of it this way, so like, let's say, uh, the thing that we're talking about, whatever it is, let's say it costs a thousand bucks brand new, right? So you buy the thing for a thousand bucks new, uh, and when you're done with it, you can sell it for 800 bucks as long as you know it's in good shape. You've had it for a year or six months or how, you know whatever, right? So you you sell it for 800 bucks, and now now let's sort of flip it for a second. And now I'm the I'm the consumer, right? So I'm looking at buying one of these things, and I can either get it for a thousand bucks new or around 800 bucks used, right? Right. So if I buy it for 800 bucks used, and I use it for another I don't know six months or whatever. I can probably most likely sell it again for about 800 bucks used, yes. which yeah. is, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's that way with say an iPad or something. Yeah. A lot of stuff. So if you look at, look at the, you know, buying new versus used thing with that concept in mind, it almost always makes more sense to get it used. If again, you're looking at, you know, potentially turning it over, um, and, you, you know, you know, you're not going to be the, the final and, you know, last owner of this thing. I guess the only the only place that I have a little weariness in that is yeah. when stuff is under warranty or not under warranty. OK, you I, know? I, I hear that. Although isn't I mean, legally, a warranty is supposed to transfer, right? Like it, like if you buy a computer, usually you sell to me one month in, I still have 11 months on a warranty. Wait, you or, the, or me? You you sold it to me. I should still have eleven months left. Well, I, I think it depends on the the company. I know if we're talking about Apple, I remember. Um, at least it used to be like this. Now I'm getting fuzzy. I can't remember. I, I want to say that the warranty followed the device. So once you registered Apple Care, it didn't really matter whose name was attached to the computer, as long as the Apple Care was attached the to the serial, serial number. So you could it. basically, I could hand you my old computer. You know, let's say it's two and a half years old and it still had Apple Care on it. You could walk into an Apple store with it and check it in for a repair with your, under your name, as long as that serial number had that Apple Care attached to it, and it would it would be just fine. Okay, I think that's how it worked. Yeah, that I mean that that is my only place where buying used is a little bit odd. Do you ever mm. buy used like lenses? Yeah, my only. I, I did you try them out first, or did you buy them off of eBay? Both. My, uh, if I could try them out, it would be one thing, but I, I'm weary about buying them off of eBay just because getting lenses, not just fixed, like there's actually something wrong with it, but like focus issues or like well, minor sort of things. I hear uh, you. Get but a, lot of, a lot of places that sell those sorts of things have return policies. So if you don't like it, you could just send it back. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And you could save a serious amount of cash doing it that way too. I know. You're, you're, see, you're smarter than I am. Well, in some things anyway. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I got it a, a, a few uh, weeks ago, mm-hmm. a couple of months ago, I guess it is. Uh, a friend of mine named Moira up in Toronto, mm-hmm. e- Toronto, as they say, uh, emailed me I mean, and said, no, hey. They say Toronto, actually. Toronto? Yeah, it's all one word. There you go. Um, she emailed me and said, hey, there's this gallery up here. 
they're having a, a, a juried competition for this photograph or photographic show. Hmm. You should enter. You know, I want you to enter. So just send me some pictures, and I'll pay the fee, and I'll uh, do all the paperwork for you. Huh? Moira is she's a she's a a, a peach. Sounds like a, a cool deal. Yeah. So that was a couple of months ago. So this morning I wake up. Actually, let me back up. Last week I started getting calls from AdBase uh, because my subscription is coming due, mm. and I'm probably not going to resubscribe, and that's a whole other story. But I've been sort of ducking their calls because they like are hounding me, even though I tell them I don't want it. Uh, and they come, and they're in Toronto. They're in Ontario. Mm. So I've been ducking their calls for the past week. So yesterday, a call rings up, and this caller ID is from Toronto mm. or Ontario. So you think it's these guys. So I ignore it right. and let it go to voicemail and just never check the voicemail last night. Because ah. I thought it would be like, hi, this is Jane from AdBase, blah, mm. blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So this morning I wake up and Moira emails me and she goes, hey, it looks like I see you made it into the, into the show. Did you send them your pictures? It's mm. opening on Thursday. Hmm. You know, like this week. Huh. And I was like, that's funny. I never heard anything hmm. about this. So I go and listen to the voicemail, and it turns out it's the guy from the gallery oh, whoops. calling to find out where my pictures are. Oops. Yeah. Zip. So uh, he says, oh, I, I sent you emails and I never heard back and whatever it is. I never got emails from this guy. I don't know mm, if he has the wrong email the address wrong email. or yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, long story short, I'm like, oh, shoot. Now I got to figure out a way to get them. So I, Moira's like, well, you know, send me the files. I'll get them printed. I'll get frames and I'll bring them over there. Jeez. Yeah. Well, wait, do, what, this isn't work that you have already printed and framed. Well, I'm sure I do, but I can't get it there by tomorrow. Or at least not for not a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> right? Because this is now international, and you know what I mean? Yeah. It becomes a thing. Drag. So, so, so I sent Moira files this morning, mm-hmm. and she got them printed, and apparently she was getting them in frames and dropping them off at the curator's house tonight. Huh. How about that? But it just shows you, sometimes there are nice people in this world. Oh, yeah. Both the curator was very understanding, and Moira Fogarty is kick-ass. Sweet. Anyway, that that was my morning. Just nice. like all of this, trying to figure out this stupid uh, stuff for this gallery. Man, I had one of the. You ever have this situation? So, um, for those unfamiliar, I I have been self-employed now. I've just just now, as of April of 2012, uh, been doing it for a year, and uh, I am happy to report that um, I am now pretty much uh, at the pace that I was hoping I'd be at. Uh, wherein that you know I'm I'm breaking even if not more on a month to month basis, and uh, you know I've been building up a a nice little base of clients and people to work with and for, and uh, it's been good. You know there have definitely been some rough patches, like January was a particularly one rough month, but uh, but it all it's all sort of like coming around and things are good. So um, today was one of those days where. Uh, I within a four hour window, I got two or three emails and text messages from three different people, all asking me for the same slice of time. You know? Womp womp. I know, and it's like <laughs> really frustrating because I tend to roll, you know, first come first serve. You know, once once I've committed, you know, once you've asked me, 
you know, if I can do something uh, and I, you know, I look at my, the next thing I do is I look at my calendar and if I don't have anything going on, uh, then I'm very likely to say, yeah, let's do it. Uh, and the only, the only time that things get a little fuzzy is when there are different amounts of money and different, um, I guess you can call them priorities or stat. Like for example, like let's say, you know, um, I got one gig and it's just me. Like, like let's say you and I were talking like, Hey man, I'm working on this project. There's no money in it, but this would be fun. And let's, you know, it'll be cool. And I could really use your help. Right. So, yeah. so we got that scheduled for this, uh, Friday afternoon. Right. Then, so, so we're all set, right? So I've committed, you know, I said I would do that for sure. Um, but then I get a call from photographer X saying, Hey man, um, you know, I got this big job and it pays this much and it's, it's on, it's on Friday, Friday night. So what I, the next thing I would do was, is I would call you. I would, I would, first of all, tell the guy, you know what, let me, you know, do you, do you need an answer right this second? Uh, and usually they'll, they'll be like, okay, well, let me know as soon as you know. Um, and I'll say like, it's 50, 50 or something like that. Uh, and the very next thing I'll do is I'll call you and I'll say, Hey man, um, is it cool if I bail on this for, for a paid for a paid gig. Sure. And nine times out of 10, it's, it's no big deal because it's not like you're paying me or anything like that. Uh, and you know, and then, then I'd call the guy right back and say, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. But what if the situation were a little bit different? And so you called me up and like, Hey man, I got this little thing. It only pays, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll use really ridiculously low numbers for this argument. It only pays sure. $10. Right. And let's say my average, you know, normally I'll, I'll get like $50 or a hundred dollars or, you know, a little bit, a lot more, you know, for a normal gig, that's when it gets tricky. It's like, well, so, so now you've already sort of offered to pay me some money. Um, and you know, and it's definitely work that I want to do and it's work with somebody I want to work on. You know, all of the things are good. It's like, it's a cool project. It's a cool photographer. It's a cool, uh, and the money and there is money, you know, which isn't always the case, but then you're in this situation where it's like, well, damn. And then let's flip it around, uh, even more. Let's say now the other guy, the other call, the conflict is, is a first time person. Is somebody who I've never worked with before, who I've always wanted to work with, and is willing to pay me more money. So yes. now it's like, oh man! So so now, awkward situation. It's well, it's a little bit more. The stakes are higher. So so now it's like I'm I'm still sort of compelled to to do the same thing. You know, I'm going to call you, my friend, someone who I've you know who who knows me and, and everything. It's, it's fine. Uh, and again, nine times out of ten, you'll probably be cool and say, oh yeah, man, go for go for the higher high, higher paying gig with this new guy that you've never worked with before. Rather than than you know me, I'll, I'll I'll be fine, right? And that that's that's those are both situations that I've been in and, and have handled. But but now, <laughs> what happened today was even worse uh, because it's it's with you know the, the original conflict is with somebody who I I've just recently started working with and just kind of got on their list, you know, like because I had a couple of missed, you know, they called me a couple times in the past and the scheduling just wasn't there. But finally, we got the gig and you know and then I got it and then this is this will be my like I'll say third or fourth fourth gig with them right and and they're paying me pretty well not not as well as you know as this other thing but what but well enough like well enough that i i would feel funny trying to call out of it and cancel but but now i got this call from this other guy again exactly the same situation first time uh it's a travel gig so you know it'd be a whole couple of days and the money would be really good but i i just can't i i, I don't i just don't feel comfortable canceling on the original guy you know yeah, and, this is the tough thing. And then, and then as if that, working for yourself. And as if that wasn't enough, uh, in the midst of all that, I get another message from another guy saying, "Hey, can you work that same weekend?" I'm like, "Ah, oh, no, <laughs> I, I'm having enough trouble with this. You know, with this, with these two. I got two. Can't handle three. A, a, yeah, a third one is just not. I just can't even do it. It's just oh, yeah. it's so frustrating. So, you know, in in in, in the positive 
frame of light, you're like, oh, okay, well, it's cool to be in demand. You know, it's always nice to be, you know, wanted. But on the flip, it kind of sucks to have to to say no and to and to play these games. You know. Yeah. So it happens a lot. That has been my morning. Well, that's an exciting morning, I guess. <laughs> blah blah blah. Hey, what can you tell me about um, Raid on Macintosh? Probably a lot. Uh, okay, well, well, let's let's back up. Yeah. Uh, for those unaware, Raid is a, a, a acronym. A redundant array of independent disks. Yep. Uh, basically, you take multiple physical hard drives and you stick them together through hardware or software, uh, and so they look like one drive on your system. And there's there's different ways to do this. You could do what's called RAID 0, which uh, puts half the data on one and half the data on the other so it can write twice as fast and read twice as fast. That's called RAID 0. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do RAID 1, where it's writing and reading the same thing to two different drives, so that's safer because if one crashes, you have everything on the other one. Uh-huh. Um, there's RAID 3 and 4, which no one ever uses. There's RAID 5, which you have multiple drives, and it splits parity data, basically um, uh, uh, sort of metadata, essentially, about the data uh, across all the drives, so that if you lose one, the remaining drives can rebuild that third drive. Yep. Uh, and then, uh, well, there's RAID 6, which is like RAID 5 with two redundant drives, I think. Yep. And then there's RAID 1... Uh, zero and zero one, RAID ten or RAID zero one, yeah. w- which is uh, <laughs> you take one, two different RAID zero arrays and you turn and then you do like a RAID one with them or right. the other way around, right. And then there's fifty and f- and other things like that. Where yeah. You take two RAID fives and you mirror them, yes, or you stripe them. Yeah, there's, there's it gets silly. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. So but you've, you've you've summarized it quickly and accurately enough if, if anyone's really curious just we'll, go we'll put a Wikipedia thing in the show notes or something yeah, yeah for for raid and you can read all about it um but here, basically what it comes down to is that so i'm building this new machine that i've been talking about and yep. the 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 ssd is going to be super fast the cpu is going to be super fast i'm going to have piles of ram literally the heaps heaps of ram if you're from south africa the the or, or australia the only uh bottleneck that i really have is storage Mm. And that, and then what I mean is that the the data storage for like my images and stuff, which sure. are not going to be on, um, on SSD. They're going to be on spinning disks. And I currently use like these big two terabyte uh, Western Digital green drives, which are slightly slower. They're fifty four hundred RPM, but yeah. it doesn't actually end up being that big of a difference with the sequential stuff, just because. It, I mean, it's like twenty megabytes a second difference. It's like twenty percent difference, which is fine and I'd love 20% more but that's not changing my world um, so I was looking into different ways to to make faster storage and I mentioned in one blog post that I was going to do that I was I was considering doing uh, a RAID 5 array with like 3 of these 2 terabyte disks sure. w- which would give me a 4 terabyte array um, and but the problem is that on Macintosh it seems like you have to you have to have hardware RAID card to do that and the Apple RAID card is like 600 bucks. Yeah. Which is a lot of money. Which sure. is too much money for what I'm trying to do. Gotcha. Um, so I was considering, I was listening to MacBreak Weekly, and I generally don't listen to Alex Lindsay because he drives me crazy sometimes. Okay. But he was saying that uh, in all of their machines at work, they have a Mac Pros, they have a, a drive in the first 
bay for the boot drive. And then they have mm-hmm. three other drives filling the other three slots. And they do a software RAID 0. And mm-hmm. they call it Scary RAID. Uh-huh. Because it's RAID 0 with three drives. So, I mean, right. if any it's one fast, of those three... It's dangerous. Yeah. yeah. So, if any one of those three drives dies, you lose everything. Yep. Um, so, so it's, 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 you're sort of tripling your chances of failure. Yeah. Well, you have, you know, one in three instead of one in two. Right. Um, yeah, but I, I'm against one drive, I guess was what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the way I was thinking though, is Actually, that, no, it's not, that's not one in three. It's more than that. It's two and three instead of two, one and two. Right. Wait, say that again. You, you have a two and three chance of failure as opposed to a one and two chance. Yes. Right. Well, I guess my point was that if you had one drive or you had a RAID 0 with three drives, it's three times riskier. Right. That's right. I'm sure the statistics are something even more complex than that, but whatever. Sure. You get the point. I get it. Um, so but what I was thinking is I do a nightly backup of all of my data anyway. I do a, a, a super duper uh, to which makes clones of my drives to sparse bundles. Mm. every night. Mm-hmm. So a sparse yeah. bundle is like a disk image that expands and contracts depending on how much stuff is on the disk. So if you have a two gigabyte disk, but you only have 300 megs on it, or 300 the gigs, rather. The sparse image is only however big your data is. Right, will be only 300 gigs. Right. Um, so it saves space in the long run. Okay. So I do that every night. So uh-huh. I was thinking, what if I did that every, say, four hours? Sure. You can use Chronosync for that. Well, okay, so that's what I was going to ask you. Okay, so here's my problem. If yeah. I build a RAID 0 array with two or maybe even three drives, uh-huh. right? So it's this big honking six or four or whatever terabyte drive that's sure. super fast, theoretically. Sure. Um, I can't get a six terabyte drive to make backups to because no, one doesn't exist. So I almost have to back up to another array. Right. <laughs> or... My question is, is there a way for me to, instead of like making clones of the whole drive, basically, can you use Chronosync to say, put this folder on this drive, put this folder on that drive? Yep. Okay. So basically, sure so I could, I could break it up and put it onto single drives without having to like have a backup raid. Absolutely. Okay. In fact, yeah. And you can get really crazy with the scheduling too. One of the nice things about Chronosync is um, it has a really relatively well I would say well implemented scheduler so uh, the way chronosync works is you essentially create uh, a new document for every job that you want to happen right uh, and you can have as many documents as you want so once you've created the the job you can then tell the scheduler run this job at you know at this frequency you know once a week once a month one time only three times a day you know whatever however however you want to set it up it's a it's a relatively flexible uh and 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 you know deep um scheduler uh and the cool thing is is that because it uses this it it keeps each sync job um in its own little document it actually maintains a database so if you are doing things like like diff you know like a different different differential you know, updates where right. it's only doing changes or whatever. That's what I would use. It, yeah. It holds that stuff in that document. So, um, you know, it doesn't have to spend reinvent the wheel scanning every, you know, the whole drive every time it can just do a, a quicker, you know, just a directory scan, you know, like a checksum kind of run as opposed to having to, 
dig in, okay. so to speak. Okay. So, so what I'm rec- what I'm suggesting actually might be possible is what I'm. Yeah. Another really cool thing that I like about it is if you're familiar with rsync, um, it does a very rsync esque trick where it can even do uh, archives. So you can you can go into the the details of a job in Chronosync and say, hey, look, uh, just to be safe, what I want you to do is. When you overwrite move, these files, overwrite take the old one and put it over here just in put case. Them in a, put them in a separate folder, yeah. and, if, and then you can even tell it how many days back or how many times, how many sessions back you want it to go. Right. So you can say save the three most, the three, you know, most recent of those. So after, after it's been updated or revised three times or after three weeks or what, you know, whatever the f- number you want, then it'll get rid of them. So you, you can even still you know, kind of have like a time machine-esque yeah. you know, escape hatch, last okay. ditch, like, oh, man, that w- I shouldn't have done that. And unfortunately, I can go back to the old one and, and, and re- refine it. Okay. So, to speak. So, this, so. so this should be able to work. That was my fear is that I was worried that I would be stuck having a RAID as my backup, too, because how else could I back up six terabytes of stuff or whatever, well, what have you? Yeah. You know, again, you, that's, what, that's not uncommon. I mean, okay. backing up a RAID to another RAID is... Yeah, I know. I just didn't want to do it just because the whole, that's all of my stuff, and I, sure. feel more sa- I feel more safe when it's like individual drives and not splitting data across things. Sure, sure, sure. Um, all right, so let's talk about... Now, macOS can do RAID 1 and RAID 0 built into disk utility as software. Correct. Okay. Uh, and you is it is it difficult to set up, easy to set up? It's, and it's then retardedly there, easy. There's also soft RAID? Yep. What's that? Is it a Before, set, is it its own driver? Yeah. Before um, Apple got got around to uh, figuring out how to make reliable raids within disk utility, like in the old days of OS X. Um, soft raid is, a, is an ancient product. Soft raid has been around, you know, since the nineties. It's, it's, it actually used to, it's funny. Cause I think it used to be an Apple product. I re- if I remember correctly, the guys that wrote soft raid worked for Apple and then wound up taking that code with them and starting the company that, that makes it now. Because I remember when, when, when I first started learning about raids and stuff like that, there was something called the Apple Raid Utility, um, which had the like identical user interface um, and even the same icons as Soft Raid did. And this is like back in like the mid '90s, so it's, it's a long time ago. But anyway, um, Soft Raid essentially is uh, it gives you a little bit more control. It actually gives you a lot more control over um, over the way your your raid behaves you can tweak a few more uh details as far as cache sizes and you know how things how things behave um but at the end of the day as far as performance is concerned i did some really basic preliminary testing and i couldn't find a any kind of difference like speed wise the speed was the same and and you know software isn't cheap i think it's like 100 bucks or something it's like that. 129 dollars yeah and it's like well geez you know and it's one thing if it's just you but i was i was shopping for you know about 25 units, you know, 25 machines and they don't have, they didn't have any sort of site licensing and it wasn't, wasn't something that imaged very well either. Wait, this is a detouch or no? Yeah, I think it was a detouch and another place before that. And it just, it's like, well, I can't really justify the expense on that many computers, you know, for, for this when I can do it for free built in, you know, and the, and the, the difference in performance is, is negligible. Okay. See, um, but for no, one person, you know, for one person, if you want like real tight control, it's actually a pretty cool, pretty cool app. See, the thing is, I, I, so I was writing that I was going to try doing this RAID 0 array, which uh-huh. should theoretically double my read and my write, or almost double my read and my write. Sure. Um, 
So some guy who follows me on Twitter says, no, RAID 0, uh, you know, not really any faster outside of benchmarks. Okay. Uh, and he's like, so don't bother unless you have a good RAID card. But, like, I've heard very – I've heard the opposite thing too. <laughs> so it's like I almost need to put a couple drives in here, make one, and do some tests. That, uh, <coughs> excuse me. That's um, that's what I would suggest. Okay. Um, it's one thing to take other people's word for it, but nobody works the same exact way you do. Right. And at the end of the day, you're the one who has to live with it. So yeah. I would say if you have the ability to test it, by all means, okay. do that. Now, if you were going to do it and you were going to set up a, a, a schedule, how often would you how, how often would you have it back up that you would feel safe? Um, I would – I mean, it depends on how, how much I'm working. Um, yeah. By default, I would just do it once a day. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I mean, I, I have my current setup as once a day. Um, the other thing you can do, which is nice, is once you have the schedule set up, you could force it. Yeah, you just do it manually. Um, that's what I mean. When I work as a tech on jobs, that's like after I've gotten the session set up, the very next thing I do is I go into ChronoSync and I set up my my syncs. Um, I usually have two syncs going, where I sync uh, the job, the primary job, to the the first backup, which is usually an internal, you know, another drive in the same machine, or an ex- external drive number one, if we're talking about laptops. And then a second sync, which is either the same exact job to external two, or if I want to, you know, get a little crafty, I can go, you know, backup from backup one to backup two. Uh, and then I don't set them up on a. I, I don't like having the, the the backup run while we're capturing. So, what I tend to do, there's a nice little keyboard command with with ChronoSync. Um, you can easily just you know Command Tab over to ChronoSync, hit the and then. To, to initiate the sync, you just hit the command right arrow button, and that that for, that that kicks the sync off. Um, and what's cool is that you can abort it at, at any time, and it'll just pick up right where it left off. So so what I so do if is it's in killing between, your performance or yeah, something. Yeah, like in between shots, and you know when when I know I'm going to have a few minutes, uh, to, to, you know to do it, or for obviously for breaking for lunch or for you know changing a setup or whatever, then I'm obviously going to do both of them, you know, and get the full sure. the full sync running. And that's kind of one of the best tricks I can advise to anybody in, in, in the digital tech scene is, you know, cause man, digital techs are always the worst, like the last guy to leave the set because you're having to wait for those damn backups to finish. Sure. You know, you don't want to shut your computer down until you've got at least two copies living somewhere. If you can yeah. help it. Yeah. And if you've shot like 40, 50, 60 gigs of stuff that day, you know, it, I mean, granted hard drive speeds are nice and fast, but still 60 gigs times two is, you know, at least half an hour, 45 minutes. Sure. You know, um, if not more, depending on your situation. Um, so, so if you can start that process, if you can start chipping away at that throughout the day, so you, you know you you shot sixty gigs, but if you can every ten gigs or so, you know, start getting those backups, you know, you can make it so that the last backup of the day is only you know ten gigs or five gigs, you know, and then you're you're done, easy, you know. Yeah, no, no, no. It's interesting. No. I just, it's like it, it, it's the one thing that's difficult to do is to get a chunk of faster storage without going external and spending a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I'm resigned to, to going external. I think external is fine. Between you know, from from ESATA and now Thunderbolt, um, the speeds are they're great. No, so. the the speeds are fine. It's it's the cost of doing. Like I can buy bare drives really cheap. Sure. And to not have to have another box that I have to spend minimum like two three hundred dollars on. Yeah, at least. It's you know like there there's that uh, OWC five drive or four drive array that uh-huh. does RAID 5 and it's eSATA 
if uh-huh. it had USB three, I would get it. I just don't trust eSATA connections. <laughs> yeah, they're actually. I gotta. I gotta agree with you. They're the least reliable. I would say the most dodgy of all yeah. computer connections I've ever dealt with. <laughs> I would rather have a regular SATA connection. Like those are pretty tight. No, just Especially like you get the, the ones back. with the clips. Yeah. Like yeah. I almost wish that's what they had. Yeah. Because he said it like there's nothing holding it in. No. And, and I mean, my number one pet peeve. Um, so my favorite eSATA solution for mobile is the, um, you know, they have Sonnet. those little PC card. Well, there's a, yeah, Sonnet makes one. Um, OWC has an in-house one. Um, but basically the, 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 the kind of critical failure <laughs> of, of a PC um, uh, express slot is that it's push to release. It's like an SD card. You know, it's like you push it in all the way and it clicks into place and then you push it again all the way in and then it pops out, right? Like yep. an SD card. Well, the problem is those eSATA car, uh, cables and connectors are so damn stiff that you can actually inadvertently pull the interface card out. You can pull the whole eSATA interface card out of the PC Express slot while the drive is mounted and kernel panic your machine, like totally yeah, t- t- hose it. Yeah. Yeah. Not cool. I mean, uh, I guess that, it like that's the funny, times. that's the thing about like USB and Thunderbolt. It's just nice that you're not going to, they're not such low level connections that they will kernel panic your machine. This if you is, don't connect, this is true. I mean, you'll, you'll get pinwheels and you'll hang and stuff, but when you, once the bus shuts down, it doesn't take the whole machine with it. Exactly. Um, uh, there's yeah, something the, the, about my rule about, that's just too low level. It's true, yeah. My my general rule whenever you're dealing with anything eSATA, be it PCI, you know, cards in a Mac Pro or PC Express cards in a portable, um sh- shut it down. You know, just just basically, you know, make your connections while the machine is off or during a restart. Like and that that's another weird thing like there's because eSATA isn't a natively supported protocol in Mac OS. Yep. Uh and there's you know, any given card will have um it's dry. No, that, don't get me wrong. Um, there is a sort of generic eSATA driver in OS 10 uh, because like with the, with like, for example, with the OWC card that you stick in the PC express card, it just starts to work magically. You know, you don't need to worry about installing anything, but if you start getting into the PCI cards on a Mac pro, you do need to install drivers and every manufacturer has their own take on it. And sometimes they're more predictable than others. And it's, but the, the long and the short of it is none of them are, are what I would call rock solid. I've had, I've had issues with everyone that I've ever seen. I've tried at least two or three. Yeah. Um, and the, the one thing I, I can say is that if you want to have any kind of consistent behavior, ESAT, let's put it this way. ESAT, in my opinion, is not a plug and play protocol. It's a, no. it's a shutdown. It's it kind of like, remember how SCSI used to be back yep. in the old days? You basically shut it down, plug it in, turn it on, turn the computer on and hope that it works. <laughs> and yeah. if it doesn't work, restart. <laughs> yeah. Again. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, yeah, I used to have an external eSATA drive that, that I still have actually, and I used to have it plugged in, but then every once in a while it would dismount, it would remount. Well, tell this me this. A, this was uh, on Windows. Cause yeah, you I was going to say, how, how does it feel? How does when, how, now you've had way more experience with windows than I have. Would you say that eSATA behaves in that regard on windows as well? Uh, if you are, if your drives are in sort of a AHCI mode, uh, like the, that windows is very much plug and play with most SATA drives. Uh-huh. So like you can actually hot plug eSATA connections on windows huh. and it'll mount and then huh. you can disconnect it and you can unmount it. Which is something that coming well, from Windows over feeling, to the Mac is really frustrating. I have a feeling that that actually probably has more to do with the drivers, with, right? That's what well, it is. there's a thing that I've always sort of been jealous of uh, with Windows, and that is, I think I've talked about this before. Not having to eject? 
Well, yeah, that whole thing. Like the, the basically, <laughs> like the file system, like needing to touch every. And, uh, sorry, the operating system having to touch the file system. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, the classic example is with like let's let's rewind ten years back to CDs and DVDs, right? So on a Macintosh, you pop a, a DVD or a CD into your computer. And once the computer is has re, you know once macOS has um, acknowledged that disk, uh, it keeps the disk spinning and will you know keep it up to speed and ready to ready to use for however long the 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 default is. We'll, we'll say like a minute, right? Yeah. And then let's say you've copied your file and 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 the the timeout has has elapsed and the drive spins down. Right, because you know it, it. It's smart. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm not being used right now. No sense uh, spinning my wheels here. I'll, I'll sure. wait until someone asks me for another piece of data, uh, which is fine. Now, uh, if this were a Windows machine, uh, you could simply reach over to that CD drive, push the eject button on that drive, and the the drive would have no problem just spitting it right out and giving it to you in your hand. True. Um, now, in my experience, sometimes you would see the drive disappear from the the Windows Explorer or whatever the Windows well, the, the, the disk would, exp- would so, sometimes, but sometimes it wouldn't. And what would happen is you you know you double click on it. And it's like oh well, please insert this disk if you want to use it, kind of thing. Yes. Um, but with a Macintosh, uh, there is no eject button, <laughs> and if there is an eject button, in the old days anyway, um, you it's a you, soft eject button. Yeah, you you would have to push a button on in software, and it wouldn't necessarily give it to you right away and, and that it was but, done with it right and then the, but the most frustrating thing for me was is the open and save issues where so so let's say i'm in photoshop and so remember that dvd that i put in about two hours ago uh i want to just save this file so I'm, i made a brand new file i hit command s uh and i get an open save dialogue and it asks it's asking me where i want to put it i just want to save it on my desktop sure but hang on a second i need to show you every single choice you have for where this might be able to be saved, even though this is a read-only volume, I'm going to spin up this disk anyway, just just because I want it to. I, I, every volume that's attached to, to me, I need to have it. You know, I need to touch it once just yep. to make sure it's still there. And so sometimes with a slow ass DVD drive, you're sitting there waiting for 10, 15 seconds for the damn thing to spin up and register again, and then finally you can navigate to the directory that you want. That's um, one of the reasons why I don't let it spin down hard drives. Oh, well, that's hard drives is one thing, but I'm talking about like optical drives sure. and uh, in some cases network volumes as well. You know what else is annoying to me is when you're in a open save dialog box uh-huh. uh, on Windows, you can rename stuff right inside of the save and open dialog boxes. I've seen that. Yeah, I've it's essentially a, a, an explorer window. Yeah. Is the dri- so if you see something, you're like, oh, shoot, I needed to save this or this. Oh, I got to rename that one. You can yeah. do it right there. Yeah. Within the open or save dialog box, which is actually really handy a yeah. lot of times. The, there it's, are it's, it's a surprisingly power user thing that Windows does right. Right. Well, there are third party apps that you can get that can, that replace that, the that, open that save dialog. That. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there there are some interesting choices though that Apple has made that I I like about the open save. Um, two of which uh, might or might not be known to our listeners, which I will share with you now. Um, one of them, Command is, D. What's that? Command D. No, that's that's oh, okay. a pretty common one actually. I like uh, that one. Yeah, co- Command D. Actually, almost all the Finder shortcuts work in OpenSave. So if you want to go to yeah. your desktop or your um, home folder, you know, Command Shift H or Command Shift uh, D or Command D, we'll we'll shoot you right to them. Uh, but uh, the first thing which I use a lot is drag and drop. 
So let's say, again, you're, you're in the situation where you, you, you've cr- just created a brand new document and um, you want to save that document uh, in a specific folder on a specific volume, which is not the default. You know, the default will be in your documents folder, right, or your desktop. Um, so what you can do is if you have that volume, if you ha- let's say you have the folder that you want to save whatever it is that you're working on, you have that folder open on your in a window on the desktop, right, in the finder. You can actually drag any item from that folder in to just like select the item, any item that could be a folder, can be a document, doesn't matter. Drag that item in directly on top of the file list in the open save dialog, and it'll smartly change the path to that folder. Um, and gotcha. I know that that sounds a little tricky, um, but if you try it, it'll work. It's pretty slick. I think so I th- get it. That's a quick way to to navigate to a specific directory if you happen to have that window open on your um on your desktop uh the other the other one that can be actually infuriating if you're not careful is another weird little trick for supposedly helping you uh to save you from some typing so let's say you you have another you you have a save dialogue open and you you're looking at a folder full of files and what have you right maybe different different uh, lots of what have you what have you sure so what you can do if you just single click on any item in that list it'll actually change the name of whatever the document that you have you know if it's untitled one you can actually start off you can actually just click on any any other item in that in that folder listing and it'll change that the the then you can go and change the one to two if you want to, or you can change it to whatever. And that's another, I I actually use that all the time. That's a really handy trick for needing to, uh, to rename things quickly. Yeah. It's a, there's, it's funny how you get used to using certain little tricks. Yep. You know, well, what's more funny is how you find them. (laughs) You know, I mean, I discovered both of those things that I just shared. Uh, I found those by mistake just by monkeying around. You know? Well, it's funny that like even when I started using a Mac last year, and you came over that night, yeah. and you you Showed spent you a like bunch of stuff. <laughs> forty-five minutes, like give me like the power user rundown. Yeah, yeah. And it, and as somebody who re- knows how to use computers, I could follow you for forty-five minutes and be like, oh, okay, great. Yeah, well, now, and again, if, if you gave that speech to my mom, she'd oh my be God. like, what? Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing that again that I you know one of my long time you know whatever you want to call it uh, uh, praises of of macintosh design in general is that it has a tendency to reward you for paying attention so you know like people who know what they're doing in the in the the mac software design sphere uh have a very good track record for consistency um so that once you start learning certain ui behaviors you know or what idioms or however you want to call them you'll start seeing them pop up everywhere you know um you know, similar keyboard, like command comma, for example, uh, to bring up a preferences dialogue. You know, that, that wasn't always the case, but that sort of became a standard sort of thing, you know? Right. Uh, and, and, and just certain ways things behave. It's just like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's a, like a, another class, classic example is the whole pull to refresh thing on iOS. You know, it's like, oh, well, that's, yep. a, that's, a, that's a good idea. And so now, you know, we've been trained. So, you know, when you get a new app. But they're not always discoverable. No, it's true, but 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 my my point is, it, it's gotten to the point now where y- you'll try that, 
any time and every time that that looks like it might be an option sure. because it's it's just such a good idea. It just it's makes sense. It's become part of the language. Exactly. So my 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 whole argument is that I think Apple has had a really good track record of of, of doing stuff like that over the years, and and it's been it, I don't know, it's been good for me anyway. It's all awesome. uh, I agree. <laughs> hey, uh, we have a question. Oh yeah, yeah. What is it? It's a long email, so let me see if I can uh, uh, speed it up here. Mm -hmm. So Mitch wrote us, um, he's an equipment opinion question. Uh, He's an advanced amateur. He shot a couple weddings and things, but really he's just a software engineer who's not going to quit his day job, Uh uh, but wants to get better. Okay. Uh, He's got got a Nikon D80. Nice. uh, With a kit lens, which he never uses, but he uses a 2818 and a 5018 primes. Nice. So nice choice on on lenses there. Sure. Um, he said his, he's got his eyes set on an eighty five next, and he said that then he'll probably be done for his lenses. Sweet. Uh, blah blah blah. Okay. He he buys all full frame sense uh, lenses. You know, DX. Uh, is that what they're called? Uh, well, no. Um, Original F Nikon regular F mount, not the crop sensor. What it, are the crop sensor ones called? The crop sensors are, are called DX. It's it's actually kind of it's it's kind of weird because oh FX is the full frame. The, yeah Nikon's terminology for full frame right. versus crop frame is FX and DX. I'm oh, sorry D, <laughs> DX, but they only make a handful of crop specific yeah, lenses. It's, it's, it's the same on. So you know, you wouldn't necessarily say that I make a point of buying FX lenses. Like right. I would say it's the other way around. You know, all right. you should assume that all lenses are full frame unless yeah. they're specified DX only. And as far as I'm concerned, yeah. try to buy the don't yeah. the, buying the crop lenses is 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 it's good a if you're on a, it's only good if you're on a budget and yep. you um because honestly, like a kit lens, yeah, honestly, fine. most of the DX stuff, um, it's actually it's actually good stuff, man. It's not bad. Um, sure, th- there are definitely some solid arguments to going that route because a well, they're well, cheaper. Hold, hold, what the, we're talking lenses or, or cameras? Lenses. Okay, Beca- okay. So finish what you're saying because there's more to this question. Oh well, maybe we should hear the rest of the question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so his question is, yeah. uh, So he's got this D800. He uh, or D eighty rather difference. yeah yeah which which is a pretty old camera now yeah. and is CCD it's not even a CMOS sensor yeah so it's pretty terrible at high ISO uh, you know even at eight hundred it's too much yeah um, he he tries to shoot a twelve fifty at his son's karate and the oh. noise level is terrible yeah yeah um, he's lusting after a D seven hundred. but twenty two hundred bucks which is kind of what they're going for now yeah. uh, still seems like a lot of money for him. Uh, he's he's seeing reviews for the D seven thousand, which is what our friend Claude uses. Yeah, uh, keeps hearing great things about the camera. It's thousand dollars less expensive. Yeah. Uh, he's heard different podcasters and bloggers that own the D three, D seven hundred, D seven thousand. Say how they use the D seven thousand more than they thought they would, and are really impressed with the quality of the images. Totally. Blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, with the thought of keeping the intent on working on my skills, reaching professional level, uh, is a full frame sensor worth the wait? Uh, one little tagline he says or one little section here he said uh, recently in a blind review show by one of the other well-known names of photography yeah. they pulled up spectacular images off of the 500px site you know 500 oh sure pixels. sure yeah and they pointed out how many of the how the majority of them were shot with crop sensors got yeah. me thinking that maybe cropped isn't so bad okay yeah well first of all just the last little thing he's talking about yeah the majority of cameras out there are crop sensors yeah, so the sure. majority of images are going to be from crop sensors of course you're also looking at them very small on the web. Yeah. So any camera is going to look good when you've got it down to 700 pixels. Absolutely. Uh, so just putting that aside. Yeah. 
Um, there are advantages and disadvantages. Modern day crop cameras are pretty great. Yeah, they're awesome. Um, they're they're fine. If it'll save you a thousand dollars, you'll still be able to take great pictures. I like using wide angle primes, um, and buying wide angle primes on a crop sensor gets very expensive and very heavy uh, because they have to be even wider than I want them to be. So if I want a twenty eight, I actually have to buy a eighteen. Yeah, um, which is to you know they make them but some people make them but they're they're huge and they're well you're, you know, chunky. No, you're talking about like the pro level like high-end stuff like yeah, like for example well, the 14 millimeter 28 fixed prime it's like right. it's like a two twenty two hundred dollar lens but you can exactly. get a non-pro one you can get like the the you know the slightly slower one um does, does nikon make fat really fast real super wides um because i don't know that canon does i i don't think so I mean, I, I used to have the fourteen two eight. Right. Um, I, for some reason, I like lenses. I like when my lenses act, quote unquote, the way they're supposed to act. You know, like one to one. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Um, I just I have a thing about that, I and I know what a twenty eight looks like. Uh, for uh, uh, for future reference, there's a twenty two point eight, which would be kind of close. It would be like a thirty or a thirty two on on a on a cropped camera. Right. That's like six hundred bucks. Yeah. Um, it, it it can be done. I just I just lean towards why don't you actually, you know, uh, get the full frame camera and, and get the most out of your lenses. I mean, the differences are that you'll get less, uh, more. All things being equal, you'll get more light onto the sensor in a full frame thing because the sensor is that much bigger, which means the photo sites can be bigger, which means it'll be better in low light, which means that it'll capture more light overall. Right. Well, here's here's the thing. We're 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 at, we're at a really tricky crossroads because yeah. uh, depending on how deep your commitment to photography is, um, it's reasonable to assume that as time passes, the cost and availability of full frame sensors will get lower and you know higher and lower you know they'll, they'll become more available and they'll be cheaper right so but the problem is that as we've seen in history is a slow process i mean full frame sensors have been around for a good what five years now um but still the entry the cost of entry into the full frame scene is even at its cheapest you know even second gen used is still a grand you know it's still yeah. it's still not cheap you can still get a kick-ass you know, crop sensor, brand new crop sensor camera, which has far superior low light performance, um, high ISO you know, performance for half that, you know, yeah. uh, the, like Nikon just announced another camera. I think it's the 7200 yeah. or the 5200 or whatever. The 8200 is 24 megapixel cropped. Right. Which also, and it's like 600 bucks, man. I mean, yeah. the, and it, I guarantee you that is going to look it, way better at at ISO you know sixteen hundred yep. than a, a Canon five D or the Nikon D seven hundred you know yep. uh, just because it's it's a newer it's newer technology you know it's newer tech yep. um, but then but then we come against that flip uh, the rub is if you know you're going to be in photography for for some time and you want to you know invest for the long haul um, you want to get the best glass that you can afford because as we know bodies kind of come and go you're going to you're going to rotate through your bodies every two to four years or whatever yeah. uh but ideally your lenses yeah I've are going to be forever lenses yeah. in five years and that's and the way it should be right yeah. so so what i would suggest to to the guy who's asking the questions mitch mitch i would say look uh don't don't buy any 
DX cropped lenses. You know, if if, if you're if you th- if you're even considering going into the the um, the full frame scene, don't th- th- then don't waste your time with any DX flavored lenses. Uh, what I would suggest, uh, if you do want to start getting wider, you know, I would suggest make you know like committing making your next body purchase the you know a current gen because the d80 man, man I, I used to love that camera um i used to lust after it when i had a d70 um and it, <laughs> it, you know it, it, it's it was great back in the day but it's it's time's up man you, you you definitely owe it to yourself to pick up you know a sub thousand dollar dx camera yeah, any, like the 7000 or what have you that's the thing any of the modern cropped cameras are going to be such a huge yeah. leap up from what he they'll has have bigger screens they'll be yeah. faster I guess that's there. There is there is one difference. Okay, there there are a couple things that you don't get with a cropped uh, camera. The viewfinders are going to be smaller. A little bit. They're going to be less bright. Yep. As a general rule, it's true. Um, And the overall handling of the camera and the way the buttons are. Sometimes those (laughs) cropped cameras too. They compromise. Yeah, they compromise. The bodies are so small that they're actually awkward in your hands. It's true. To me, with big hands, it's true. So there, there is a certain amount of ergonomic stuff going on as well. Right. But remember, uh, he's coming, he's coming from zero, though. You're, you're coming from years of, of working with cameras. So. Yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is if he's going to buy a new camera, yeah. you know, he, he should, it's something he should think about. Well, I, I would just not. Yeah, I, I, my, my official advice, my final word is, is if you're going to, if you want to continue building your lens collection, um, Harkening back to a, a a comment we made earlier in this conversation, look in the used department, man. Um, True, used lenses are not bad, especially high end ones. Like shoot, yeah. shoot for the moon. Get get the highest quality pro lens that you can afford. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with saving some money on a used one, especially if you go to a place like B and H or K yeah. K E H or even eBay. You know, buying it from some place that that offers a return policy, uh, and then you know that think of it, and then you think of the lens as a long term investment. So you can get like a thousand dollar lens for you know two thirds of that cost, right? Or sometimes half of that cost. Sure. Uh, and then you bought you, you just assume that you're going to replace your body every three to four years. You know, which again, over the long term, think about it, man. If you're getting paid, right? Let's say, so let's say you're shooting, even if you're only getting like a hundred bucks for a shoot, right? And let's say you only shoot ten jobs a year, if that, right? So a hundred bucks a shoot, ten shoots a year—that's a thousand bucks. You've already paid for, you know, you've justified the cost of a, of a new body right there. You know, and then that's only one year, right? Let's, God forbid, you know, you hold on to it for two years, and you know, you make the same amount next year. So, so. Justifying the cost is shouldn't be that uh, that challenging. Yeah, it's one other thing he's got to think about is if he really likes uh, the twenty eight, his fifty, and then a possibly an eighty five. That if he gets right. a full frame camera, those aren't <laughs> going gonna, to act like yeah. a fifty seventy five no. and a one twenty. They're going to act like a twenty eight, a fifty, and an eighty five. Correct. So if he's shooting his son at karate and that's a long, he's far away. That could actually be. It's going to change the way he sees how his lenses work for him too. Right. And Maybe he this, likes longer lenses. It's true. In which then, case, he's got to buy this, new glass. <laughs> and this this obviously segues into the one other little piece of advice that I always suggest to people. Uh, and obviously, it's easier being a, a resident of New York City with our tons of options here. I don't know where where Mitch is from, but uh, renting is another terrific way to help make your decision. Um, true. Uh, we have the benefit of some terrific rental houses here in New York, uh, but lensrentals.com and, and borrowlenses.com are two really good places online where you can, you know, get your hands on any, any number of pieces of gear from a high end body to a high end lens or a combination of both for yep. a really reasonable amount of, money. and you probably have friends that have a lot of these different cameras too. If you're a photographer. Yeah. 
or, or go to, or sometimes it just takes a trip down to the camera store and yep. just say, hey, man, can I try the, yep. the, the whatever on this thing? And yep. then you can get a feel for it that way. I personally, I like full frame because I like a bigger, brighter viewfinder. I like uh, being able to have more control over depth of field. I like, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. And, and that, that touches on another thing that we didn't talk about, which is your final destination. Mm-hmm. You also like printing things ridiculously big. I know? like having the option to print things ridiculously yeah. big. Yes. And uh, not a lot of people do that anymore. True. That's not a, that's not as common as it was True. 10 years ago. So yeah. if, if Mitch here isn't yeah. even considering making yeah. prints larger than eight by 10 or five by seven or whatever, yeah. he might not necessarily need the, yeah, but the, you know what? The, so what's the 7,000? 16, 18 megapixels? What it's, is that thing? It's something, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a lot. You'll have plenty to print 13 by 19 or bigger. It'll be fine. It'll yeah. be fine. Um, you, it's, 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 it's just really how you're going to use it. Absolute image quality, maybe you give it to the full frame. But, and, and overall handling of the cameras and some of the features might be full frame. Full frame might be a better idea. But the modern cropped cameras are really great. Yeah, these th- that that divide has gotten much much yes. narrower in the past three years yep. than it ever has been. Yep. Um, so it's a much harder it's a much harder call to make. All but right. uh, that's I, that's that's my take on it. I don't know that we gave him a definitive answer, but he's got stuff to think about now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, circuitous.tv is the website. Circuitousconversations at gmail is our email address. Uh, you can also find us at, at Bill Wadman and at Dan Gottesman on Twitter. Yep. And uh, and that's about it. Yeah. Until next week. Right. Right on.